0: We are, I'm going to be preaching in Matthew. Matthew chapter 20, so if you'd like to turn there in your Bible, also at some point in the sermon, I'm going to be reading a, past, a section of 1 Corinthians 1, so if you find it helpful to, um, <clears throat> to follow along, because it's going to be about five verses, then you, you can mark uh, 1 Corinthians 1 as well, but Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, and before I preach, I just want to say a special thank you uh, this morning to the praise team. Um, uh, Thank you for that wonderful set. But as I was worshiping and thankful for all of you, your voices and your instruments, um, I just thought we don't thank you enough, number one. So thank you very much. Secondly, uh, and I was thinking about it as I was watching Cindy play and then all the other musicians, Corey and that. Thank you for practicing for all those years. Thank you for learning the scales and doing all that. A lot of us quit like really early in the piano lessons, but you all persevered. So thank you and thank you for using your gifts for the glory of God. Kids, I want to ask you kids to look at me for a second. And focus on something, and I'm actually gonna ask you a question, and I would like somebody to give me the answer. Now, one of you kids to give me an answer out loud, okay, so everybody can hear. And I'm including Chris in this as the kids, because if I don't get the answer that I want, he's already cued to know the answer I'm supposed to give. <laughs> so, kids, let me, let me, I'm gonna tell you a little story. And I want you to tell me what you feel, and then I'm going to tell you a little more of the story, and then I'm going to tell me what your first reaction to that is. Okay, here's the story, and it includes you. Kids, it's about you. Um, You have a neighbor. Let's pretend you have a neighbor. She lives next door to you. She's a really nice old lady. We're going to call her Mrs. McGillicuddy. And Mrs. McGillicuddy comes over to your house one day, and she's in her walker, and she walks over to your house. She's She's so sweet. She's so nice. And she says to you, listen... The winter's coming, and my flower beds all need to be weeded and taken care of. My leaves need to be taken care of. It's going to be a long day, a long day of work. Would you please do this work for me? And I will pay you $80. You're going to have to work all day, but I will pay you $80. Thank you, Priel. I appreciate that smile. Priel just went, what? Because that's an important part of this thing, okay? I will pay you $80, and you do what Priel does, and you go, what? Yes, I will be there. So the next day, you, she says, I want you here at the break of dawn. So the next day, you get up early and you get over there and you start weeding and you start hoeing and you start raking and you work and work and you work all morning and you work. And while you're working, by the way, your little sister, or your little brother is next door at your house and he or she is playing and swinging and sitting under a tree reading and that and that and you're watching, but you're working, you're working, you're working. So you work for about nine hours, and then Mrs. McGillicuddy comes out. She says, you're doing such a wonderful job. Thank you so much. Just a little bit more. And she walks over to your little brother and sister, and she says, hey, why don't you help? I'll pay you too. So you, their little brother and sister come over, and you guys finish for the last hour. So you worked for nine hours, and your little brother s- sister helped for an hour. So Mrs. McGillicuddy comes out and says, you've done a wonderful job. She says, "Now I'm going to pay you. And she calls your little brother or sister, and she gives him $80. What are you thinking? Okay, I'm getting some very puzzled looks. <laughs> she gives him $80. What are you thinking? Chrissy, little Chris, what are you thinking? Yeah, if she's paying him $80, what is she going to pay me? This is great. Woohoo! He only worked an hour. So then it's your turn. So you walk up, <laughs> and she pays you $80. What do you feel? What do you think? What's the first word that comes to your mind? Anybody, anybody want to offer a word? Huh? You're satisfied. Anybody else satisfied? I don't think your, 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 your peers are. What? Yeah. Probably the first thing. What, Caleb, what was the first word that came to your mind? What? Yeah. What? In other words, little Chris, what's the first word that came to your mind? Unfair. Unfair. And keep that in mind when we're just about to read. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour. That's nine o'clock. So at sunrise at six o'clock, the first laborers. Third hour is nine o'clock. And at nine and third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And again, he went out about the sixth hour, that's noon, and the nine hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, and did likewise. And about the 11th hour, which is five o'clock at night, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And, then, and when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius, and when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, "These last men have worked only an hour, one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day." But he answered one and said to him and, and uh, one of them, and said, "Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way." I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do, what I, to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, please give us grace this morning. Please help us as we come to study this very difficult passage. Give us understanding, we pray. Help us. We really seriously need help with a passage like this. We need your help to make this clear, to help us to see what you're saying, to help us to understand it. So give us that grace, we pray. We lean upon you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This parable troubles people. It troubles everybody because it seems so unfair. It seems so unfair. And so in order to really understand this parable, we need to understand it in its context because Jesus is inaugurating a kingdom. You see the first verse? For the kingdom of heaven is like. He's inaugurating a kingdom, and the nature of this kingdom is confusing to us. It seems like it's an upside-down kingdom. It seems like everything gets turned upside down. You know, the, the, the funny thing is is that it's not an upside-down kingdom. The funny, the problem is, is that we're upside-down. I had to do a uh, a Zoom teaching this week, and this Zoom teaching includes a congregation of people in the Dominican Republic, pastors, and there's a big screen like this, and my face is on that big screen. But before that time, the guy who hosts the Zoom meeting, the guy who's the head of our ministry, Kim Costanza, he went on, and when he went on, his image on his computer was completely upside down, like Kim was upside down on this big screen. And we were all cracking up, and we're like, Kim, what do you, this, before the action, it actually went up there, I'm talking to Kim, I said, Kim, you're upside down. And he said, I know, my computer's messed up, I don't know what to do about it and everything. I said, well, tell everybody you're in Australia, and you're just teaching us from there, you know, and everything. Well, anyway, as soon as his image went up on the screen in the, in the auditorium, All you heard was all this Spanish speaking going on and people laughing. I said, Kim, you are the end of a a bunch of Spanish jokes right now going on. Kim was upside down, okay? Kim was upside down. Jesus seems to be throwing everything upside down, but the truth of the matter is this is the kingdom of God. We're upside down, and Jesus is trying to get us right back on keel. You see... It's a kingdom that throws the world upside down. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, it says this, they, These who, were, who have turned the world upside down have come here too. That's what, that's what they said when the apostles showed up. It's a, it's a kingdom that doesn't make any sense to us. It's a kingdom that's different for us. Now, notice that this parable is stuck right in between two verses. Look at chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And then notice how this parable ends. Look at verse 16, 20, 16. So the last will be first and the first will be last. So Jesus is trying to help us to understand this last first, first last to help us through our confusion. Now you have to realize that let's, you have to understand a passage in its context. What's been going on in the book of Matthew? Well, look at chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus didn't say, oh, Peter or Paul or anything like that. He takes a little child and he says, you have to be like this child. This is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And no one can get into this kingdom. So, so it's like, wait a minute, we're confused. We, we understand greatness in a different way than you do. And then, of course, Peter in chapter 18 said, how many times should I give, forgive? Up to seven? Jesus says, no, up to 70 times seven. You must forgive. And then Jesus, uh, uh, they, the, he, the little children are brought to him and, and they get angry and they, they want him away. And he says, no, no, he gets angry at them. No, to such belong the kingdom of God. You must become like a little child or you can't get into this kingdom. And so, And then a rich young ruler, a very holy and righteous man who spent his whole life trying to be perfect with the law, he comes forward and he doesn't get eternal life. He doesn't get eternal life. And Jesus ends that time by saying, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And if you actually were to jump ahead to get the whole context, if you look at chapter 20 and verse 20, James and John's mother comes and she says, can my son sit at your right and your left hand? And Jesus says, no, you don't understand my kingdom. The servant, the slave is the greatest in my kingdom. He who serves, that's the greatest and so you see all of this stuff that is going on. The rich young ruler comes, and he, he's a, an earthly ruler, and he says, what must I do to get eternal life? And he walks away without eternal life. And then you have this motley crew of guys over there. Four of them are just lowly fishermen. One of them is a tax collector who's ripped people off. One of them is a zealot who is an assassin. One of them's Thomas who doubts and can't even figure out what's up and what's down. And Jesus says, they are going to be rulers in this kingdom. It's a it's a kingdom that throws everything upside down. And so Jesus is trying to help right us by helping us to understand something with this parable but Quite frankly, friends, we're so upside down, we don't even get this parable. We don't even understand what it's about. And so let's wrestle with this parable. Now, the parable, of course, is very straightforward because I told the story with Mrs. McGillicuddy instead of the, instead of the leader uh, here with the children. The parable, of course, is that if uh, the man has a vineyard, he has a, now a vineyard, of course, is where grapes are. And at this point, he's desperate for laborers. And so what he's doing to get these laborers here is he's, excuse me, what he's doing to get these laborers is he's going out every three hours to get labor. So obviously what's happening here is that this is the harvest time. He has got to get these, these grapes harvested. He can't let them rot on the vine, and so he's going out and he's getting labor. So he starts at the earliest break of dawn, gets these laborers, says, I will pay you a denarius. And a denarius was was is a is a Roman coin, and that Roman coin is equivalent to a day's labor for a laborer. And so he's gonna pay them minimum wage, as it were. He's gonna pay them what a laborer gets. Now, minimum wage, I never even realized that's until I looked it up. Minimum wage in Pennsylvania is $7.25. In Ohio, it's $8.80, which I didn't even realize states were different. But anyway, so let's just kind of round this out. So if you work an eight-hour day at $8 an hour, that's $64 a day. If you work a 12-hour day, that's $96 a day. If you work 12 days, that's $1,152. Okay, it's about $1,000. All right. So this guy says, I'm going to pay you Say, $100 a day. I'm going to pay you minimum wage, as it were, because you're laborers. You pick grapes for me, and I'll pay you. Then he goes out at 9 o'clock, and he says to the guys, listen, go to my vineyard. Get over there. we got all these grapes. I will pay you what is fair and Right? And so they, they obviously respect this guy, and they go. He goes back at noon, they go. He goes back at 3, they go. And then he goes to fi- at 5 o'clock, and notice that the, 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 inter- the interaction gets a little bit different. Uh, he says uh, to these men at 5 o'clock, he says, uh, uh, why are you here? Like, what, what are you doing here? Like, it's the whole day you've wasted away. Look at verse 6. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found them standing there, standing idle. And he said to them, why why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, "It's, it's not our fault. Nobody's hired us. Nobody's hired us. And he said to them, well, you know, there's a part of you that these guys, well, why weren't you there at at, at 6 in the morning or 9 or 12 or 3? He would have hired them. You know, so anyway, uh, he goes, he says, well, come on, I'll hire you, and I'll pay you what's right. You'll receive what's right, so go. So, of course, you know the story. They go, and then it comes time to paying people off. And when it comes time to paying people off, he pays the first one a denarius. They worked one hour, and he pays them a denarius. So the guys who were hired first say, yippee! We're going to get paid more than a denarius. We have to. This guys only worked one hour. We have to. And by the time they get up, he gives them a denarius. Okay? So, so literally, if you think about it, it's, uh, it's at $8 an hour, it's $96. So these guys got $96 for 12 hours worth of work. And the first guy's got $96 for one hour of work. Okay? So that's, that's how this thing works out. Now, of course, they're not happy. They grumble. They grumble. They get together and they complain. Look at verse 11. They complain against him. And they say, we worked so hard. These guys only worked one hour. We bore the burden of the day in the scorching heat. So then the landowner talks to one of this this group, the very disgruntled laborers. Verse 13. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. I am not acting unjustly toward you. The word literally is unrighteous. I am not being unrighteous toward you. I am doing you no wrong, he said. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. Now, think about this. If he would have never given the extra, the denarius to the last guy, if he'd only given that guy a twelfth of a denarius, a little bit of money, Everything would have been fine. Nobody would have even thought of it. They would have said, hey, I put in a good, honest day's work. I got an honest day's wage. He was a righteous man. He told me he would pay me. I did this work, and he paid me. This was good. Everybody would have gone home happy. And this man is saying, listen, have I broken contract with you? No, you haven't. Have I been unjust to you? No, you haven't. Have I done anything wrong to you in that sense? Well, no, technically you haven't. You told me you would hire me for a denarius. I worked and you paid me my denarius. And so he says, that's right. But then notice what he says. He says this, verse, um, take what is yours and go. Then look at the middle of verse 14. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Now, this is what's called a prerogative. That's why I've entitled this sermon, The Prerogative of Grace, I have decided, I've wished, I've decided to bless this man, to bless these guys, and to give them this money. Now, maybe they're lazy. Maybe they are, but maybe they have wife and kids. And those wife and kids need to be fed. Maybe that's why he gave them money. I don't know. I don't know. But he he blessed them. He he blessed them. Maybe, maybe they're good hard workers. They just, they just nobody would hire them. And so he he felt like he have you ever done that? Have you ever have you ever you know slipped a $20 bill in for a tip uh, that was supposed to be supposed to be five dollars? Because you talked with a person, you saw that there was a need there, and you just you just decided to bless them. You know, you paid as much for the tip as you do for the meal sometimes. And that and that's that's what he did here. And then look at verse 15. He says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? This is my money. I don't owe you anything more than a denarius. I'm giving you a denarius. If I decide to give him a denarius too for one hour, I can do that because it's my stuff. My money isn't your money. It's my money. He says, then he says this, or is your eye evil evil? Because I am not good. Maybe some of your Bibles say, Are you jealous? Or are you envious? But the literal, this is the literal, is your eye evil? And that's probably what it means. Something why, why, why do you now hate this guy? Because I blessed him. I gave grace to him. Now Jesus is telling us, look at verse one, that this is what the kingdom of God is like. Now look at verse uh, the, the nineteen thirty. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. And then you have verse twenty, beginning with four. That's an explanatory word. Now he's going for this reason. This is the kingdom of God of heaven is like this. Then he gives us this parable, and then in the end he says, "So the last will be first, and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen." Now, so here's the story. Here's the story. Here's what we have now. Let's try to grasp this. Let's try to understand this. Let's try to get this. And let me begin by saying this. This is a parable about grace. This is a parable about grace. And grace is a mystery to us. Grace confuses us. Grace unsettles us. Grace confounds us. Grace mystifies us. We don't understand grace. Why? Well, because we're upside down, okay? And God is trying to write us by explaining to us through this parable what grace is. Now, what is grace? What is grace? Well, grace is hard to define, but it's, it's obviously a love. Grace is a love. But I think you can define it like this. Grace is a super, super powerful love. Grace is an extraordinary love. Grace is a, a large, infinite, massive love that, that reacts and responds in a way that you don't really expect. That's what grace is. So think of grace. When you think of grace, think of love, but think of just a super high-charged, massive, infinite love that reacts in ways that you don't necessarily even understand but they're beautiful that's what grace is grace is first and foremost an undeserved love grace is an undeserved love it's a love that somebody pours out on us even though we don't deserve it we don't do anything to actually merit it and so for instance if somebody comes to you and gives you a gift just out of nowhere. It's not your birthday. It's not your anniversary. They, they just give you, hey, I, I bought you a gift. They give you a gift. What's the first thing you do when you get the gift? Like, you're confused. Like, w- wait a minute. What, why? What'd you give me this gift for? What, what's this for? I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything to deserve this. No, no, no. no. Don't give me a gift. That, see, that's grace is a love. It's a gift. It's giving that is undeserved, and that confuses us when this happens. And the bigger the gift the more it confounds you. you. say, here, I gave you the gift, and the gift is, say, worth $100. And you're like, what? Whoa, that's a lot of money. You, why'd you spend all this money on me? Oh, just because I love you. It's not my birthday. I haven't done anything. Special. I know, I just, I just love you, and I want you to have this gift. That confuses us. If the gift is $100 million, it's like, wait a minute, what in the world? And we get confused and we get thrown upside down and we just don't, we don't understand and we even can get suspicious. Wait a minute, what's all this about? Wait a minute, is this even real? Wait a minute, I don't know. That's, that's how we respond to grace. We don't respond because we're sinners. We're, we're sinful people. We think if somebody loves us, we have to own her. We have to be pretty or handsome or, 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 or suave or something like that. We can't, no. And so grace surprises us. Grace is uncomfortable to us. Grace is a love that we don't deserve. Let's say that you're driving your car and it's a little bit icy and you're backing up and you slide, you slide down your driveway and you slide into your neighbor's yard and you, you're back in and you, you smash into his nice new fence that he put out. and your neighbor comes out and you think he's going to yell at you and he doesn't yell at you. He comes out and says, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, yes. You say, yeah, yeah. Hey, I'll figure out how to pay for that fence. Hey, I'm sorry. And, and he says, no, I don't worry about it. I'll pay for the fence. I'll pay for the fence. Don't worry about it. It's tough economic times. I know you've been struggling. And in fact, do you need help paying for your car? I'll pay for your car. It's like, whoa, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that from my neighbor. That's what grace is. But grace is something even more than that. Grace is a love that is, as it were, positively forfeited. Grace is a love that we get that we actually positively forfeited and we actually deserve wrath and anger and vengeance. So this time, it's not ice, you get drunk. And you back your car into your neighbor's driveway and through the yard and through the fence and you smash into his garage and his garage falls down. And your neighbor comes out and says, hey, are you all right? Oh, wow, hey, let me help you get to your house. And no, don't worry, I'll pay for the garage. Don't worry, I'll pay for the fence. No, 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 I just, I'm concerned about your well. You know, you, 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 you need to get, let me pay for some, 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 some help for you, you know, kind of a thing. That's grace. What if you run over his dog? What if you run over a loved one? What if you run over your loved one and your alcoholism has destroyed your kidney and he forgives you all that and gives you a kidney? See, grace doesn't make any sense to us. You're like, no, man, no way, no way. No, that's grace. We just, we just are so upside down. We're like, no, no way, no way. And so you see, dear friends, grace, Jesus says, I am instituting, inaugurating a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of grace. And so Jesus has to help us to understand this. So early on in Matthew chapter, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in the early chapters of Matthew, Jesus tells us, To love our enemies. If they slap you, don't slap them back. Turn the other cheek. Bless those who curse you. Bless them. Oh, no. No, wait, wait. No, no. Bless you. Bless you. No. Pray for those who persecute you. Love those who are your enemies. And we look at that and we say, no, 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 no. I can't compute that. I hate if somebody's an enemy to me. I'm getting back. Somebody stabs me in the back. I'm stabbing him in the back. Somebody slaps me. I'm punching him. Somebody says something. I know you hate enemies. You 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 pour your anger out on enemies. You go after enemies. And Jesus said, No, no, no. In my kingdom, you love your enemies. Why? Because it's my father's kingdom and he loves his enemies. He sends his rain. He sends his sunshine. He sends health. He sends blessing. He sends food. He sends clothing. He takes care of people who hate him, who could care less about him, who would, who would who rather he didn't even exist. He just keeps blessing them. Even those who deny that he exists, he just keeps blessing and blessing. And therefore, Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus is instituting this kingdom. It's a kingdom kingdom that genuinely cares about people who have forfeited any right to even be cared about. And that's God's kingdom. And so you see, there's this idea here that, and this is what Jesus is saying, is that God pours out his love. He pours out his love upon people. Look at, um, look at hey guys, skip ahead to Romans 5.8. Look at Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now notice that. Look at that verse. While we were sinners, now the book of Romans, Romans 5. The book of Romans, for the first three chapters or so have been trying to prove how deep and how 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 awful, how how terrible our sin is, and how much wrath God has against our sin. And here now, while we're still sinners, not when we cleaned up our act, not when we got nice, while we were mean, selfish, self-centered, egotistical, hurtful, nasty, uh, foul-mouthed, ugly-hearted, God did what? Christ died for sinners. That's grace. Two, Two verses, three verses later, two verses later, it says this. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Look at that! Don't go any further. Look at that. Well, how are we described? We are enemies of God. We're hostile toward God. We don't like. I want God in our lives. Want to, I'm sick of that God talk. I don't want nothing to do with God. We're enemies of God. And what does God do to His enemies? He is concerned for their well-being, and he reconciles. I want to be made friends with them. I want to be friends with my enemies. I love my enemies. I want my enemies' well-being. I'm concerned about them, and I want to be friends with my enemies. I don't want to destroy them. I don't want to get my... I want to be friends with them, so here's what I'm going to do. And, dear friends, let's speak solemnly here, because there's some people in this room right now that have lost children. That terrible fa- pain of losing a child, of bearing a child. Look at the verse. If we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's grace, dear friends. We're going to spend all of eternity almost gate-mouthed as we are understanding and in and, and, and greater and greater depth and, and being overwhelmed and, and praising and worshiping this grace of a God who would give his son, to die for us. You see, dear friends, that's grace. That's grace. God so loves. And so John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, this fallen world, this sinful world, this rebellious world, this hateful world, this anti-God world. God so loved this world. That's grace. Unmerited love. Forfeited love. Undeserved love that he gave his son, he gave his son so that people could have everlasting life. And you see, what happens is, is that God's love is so exuberant. God's love is so big. God's love is so super. God's love is so giving and giving and so massive and so mysterious and so powerful and so amazing this grace is that we get uncomfortable when God pours it out upon other people. So Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, where he has two sons. One is a nasty jerk, and the other one tries to be a good son. And the nasty jerk comes to dad and says, hey, dad, you're taking way too long to live. I wish you'd have died a whole lot sooner because I want your money. I don't want you. I want your money. So dad says, okay, I'll just give you half the income. Here it is. And he takes it and he goes off and he spends it on prostitutes and he spends it on drugs. And he spends it on partying. He spends it off until he's poor and he's eating pig food. And the other son is home and he's doing the right thing. And then the bad son comes walking in and the father sees him, goes running to him, hugs him, kisses him, takes off his rags, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his, feet, puts his shoes on and then, and then orders a big party and a big celebration. What does the older son do? He comes out and says, what are you doing, dad? What are you doing? I've worked for you my whole life. I've never been a problem for you. I've given and given and given and been the best son that I could possibly be. And this jerk comes walking in and you treat him like he's some kind of amazing superstar. And you throw a party for him and I've never had a party like this. We don't like grace. We don't like when other people have grace poured out upon them. We don't. Jesus tells a parable of a tax collector who goes in and a Pharisee who go into church together. They go in the temple together. And the Pharisee talks about how wonderful he is how He's kept the law and how he's done this and he's done that. And then the tax collector can barely look up and he says, God have mercy upon me. I'm so sorry, God have mercy. I'm such a terrible sinner. And Jesus says, that one went home justified. That one didn't. The last will be first. Grace, the religious guy doesn't get justified. The wretched sinner does. That's grace. And it, 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 it confuses us. Timothy. Timothy in the Bible. Timothy, he doesn't even know when he became saved. He was so young. He learned the scriptures from his grandmother and from his mother, from little baby. He's only known the scriptures. Then Timothy finds, hears the gospel, finds Paul. Paul finds him. And Timothy, as a young man, goes and dedicates his entire life of sacrifice and living and giving for the Lord Jesus Christ and serving, becomes one of the best right-hand men Paul ever had. Paul sends him out of ministry. And Timothy spends his entire life serving, living, even to the point that he he has stomach problems because of the pressure and the persecution and the difficulty and such like that, it's affecting his health. It affects his, and then finally, Timothy dies after a whole long life of every day from childhood serving God, and he goes to heaven. The dying thief next to Jesus he is a miserable, nasty, robber, thieving, conniving, cynical, foul-mouthed guy, even to the point that he's hanging on the cross. He's ridiculing Jesus, and then as those hours pass, he sees Jesus as the Messiah, and he calls upon him, and that day, he goes to the same place Timothy goes to. That guy served Christ for an hour, and he gets paradise. Timothy served him his whole life, and he gets paradise. That's the mathematics of Grace. Here we have in Matthew chapter 19, chapter 19, the rich young ruler comes and Jesus says, follow me. And he says, no, I want my stuff. And I'm just gonna jump ahead. But in the end of Matthew chapter 20, two blind beggars come to Jesus and say, we wanna see. He heals them and then it says, and they followed him. The rich young ruler goes to hell and these that blind, filthy, stinking, dusty beggars are following Jesus. That's grace. That's grace. That's grace. Simon the Pharisee has Jesus over and he sits there and he judges how unholy Jesus is because a prostitute comes in and starts cleaning Jesus' feet. Then Jesus says, Simon, she loved much because she was forgiven much. You love little because you're forgiven little. That's grace. Dear friends, grace works out in strange ways. Jesus said that prostitutes and tax collectors were closer to the kingdom of heaven than the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious people of his day. Prostitutes go to heaven. If they trust in Christ, they embrace Christ in their life, they go to heaven. Pharisees go to hell. A pedophile could be in prison crying out to God and asking God to forgive him for his wretched, perverse sin he'll go to heaven. A faithful spouse who spends his whole life pursuing money or something else and has no concern for God, he'll go to hell. Satan worshipers can go to heaven while preachers and popes can go to hell. Terrible sinners can go to heaven while religious people go to hell. Low lives, poor people, nobodies, filthy people can go to heaven while rich, beautiful, successful people go to hell. By the way, did you ever realize that? How many poor people who the world despises will actually be in heaven? In James chapter two and verse five, James says this, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Heaven is gonna be filled with poor people. Heaven is going to be filled with poor people, people you don't want to be around, people who show up in Walmart and you're embarrassed for them, people who dress a certain way, act a certain way, look a certain way, don't care for themselves, poor people, they're going to fill heaven. And the rich and beautiful will go to hell. See, because whoever by grace finds Jesus goes to heaven. And whoever with the hardness of heart wants nothing to do with him goes to hell. It doesn't matter if you're a pope or a prostitute. You find salvation in Christ alone. Heaven's going to be filled with low lives. Heaven's going to be filled with nobodies. That's what grace does. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says this, "...for you see your calling, brethren, not many are wise according to the flesh, not many PhDs, not many mighty, not many powerful and, 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 and social elite, not many noble are called." But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen but the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, of God, by his grace alone. You are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Oh, dear ones. Salvation is by grace. The kingdom is by grace. The kingdom doesn't make sense to us because it's by this unmerited, lavish, exuberant love that is poured out on people that don't deserve it, don't earn it, can do nothing to get it, have forfeited it, should be in hell, and they become beloved of God, and they go to heaven, and that's grace. And dear friends, we need to understand grace. And so I'd say this, secondly, in terms of trying to grasp this, Be cautious, dear friends, be cautious about asking for justice and fairness from God. Be cautious, be cautious. You see what these men were doing, they were saying, wait a minute here, I want everything fair, I want everything fair, you paid them a denarius for one hour work, so what was he supposed to do, give them a thousand dollars for 12 hours of work, is that what they wanted? Or did, he, did, he want the, did they want him to take that denarius from those guys and give it to them because they worked harder? I want fair. I want fair. Well, I'll tell you something, dear friend. Don't you ever walk into the presence of God and ask for that. Now, 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 granted, listen, there is justice. If somebody's treating you unjustly, pray for justice, yes. But for yourself, don't ever walk into God and say, give me what I deserve. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. Look at how, how I've worked. Look at how I've labored. Give me justice, God. I demand one thing from you. Do this right. Give me justice. Don't ever ask that of God. Because he'll do it. And if God gives you and me what we deserve, we will perish. The wages of sin is death. Who amongst us is sinless? The soul that sins shall die. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. Good teacher, what must I do to gain into life? Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Dear friends, if God gives us justice, if God gives us what we deserve, we will perish forever. No, dear friends, what we need to seek God for is grace. Grace, this powerful, infinite love. Oh, God, please give me grace. God, have mercy upon me. Treat me not like I deserve. Give me grace. And you know what grace is going to look like? Here's what grace is going to look like. God, I've lied. God, I've said things that aren't true. God, I'm a liar. And God takes those lies and lays them upon Jesus. And then a whip comes down and lashes Jesus' back and lashes it again, and lashes it again, and lashes it 40 times, 39 times, 40 minus one, lashes it again until he's lapsing into unconsciousness from the pain and the blood loss, and his skin is being ripped off his back. Why? Because I lied, and my lies have been laid on him. That's grace. The man who never lied is whipped almost to death because of my lie have been laid on him. Lust, perversity, sin, God have mercy, have grace upon me. God says, okay, I will I will have grace upon you. I won't treat you as you deserve. I'll take a stake and I'll put it on my son's hand and I'll have it nailed when the hammer goes down and drives it through the flesh and drives it into the wood and nails and nails and blood is Burning everywhere. That's grace, dear friends. Oh God, my hateful heart, my anger, my selfishness, my unforgiveness. Have grace, I will have grace. Another nail, smashing it down in his hands. Oh God, I'm so unforgiving. I'm so vengeful. Have grace, I will have grace. And his feet are gathered together and smashed into the wood. And the Son of God is calling out in pain and agony. That's grace. That's grace. Oh, God, I've been selfish and greedy and thinking only about myself. Have grace. I will have grace. Pick that body up and put it into the hole so that it drops down on those wounds. The very Son of God, that's grace. Oh, God, my sin, have mercy upon my sin. Have mercy upon me. Don't treat me as my sin deserves. I will. I will. I'll lay your sins on my Son. And my Son will die. He will enter into death. My son will die for your sins. Dear friends, that's grace and mercy and justice all at once. Have you received grace? Have you received grace? Have you experienced from God this exuberant, this extravagant, this super life-changing love? Have you received grace? Aren't we all those servants who worked for one hour? (laughs) We didn't deserve this, and all of a sudden a denarius is put in our hands. That's who we are, dear friends. And secondly, do you extend grace? Do you extend grace? Are you ready to freely forgive and love? And genuinely care. Or are you somebody who's judgmental, always keeping score, always wondering rank, looking down on people, thinking you're better than them, or envious or jealous? They have lesser gifts than you, but they are getting more recognition than you do. No, dear friends, we need to extend grace. Sometimes I forget, and one of the last things I do before I come to church is I open up my wood burner to make sure the fire is okay. And sometimes when I do that, a puff of smoke comes out, and I go, oh, great. I'm going to go to church smelling like I'm on fire, like I'm smoky. Well, dear friends, that's what grace is like in in a good sense. When we experience God's grace, we give it to others. And you know what? You're just about to experience God's grace. You know why? Because God's about to put a piece of bread in your hand. And say to you, this represents my son's body that was broken for you. Now I want you to take and eat this. It's a meal. We're going to eat this. And I want you to recognize that as that bread becomes a part of who you are in your being, so you are one with my son. And I recognize his sacrifice for you. And he's going to put a cup in your hand. And he's going to say, that cup represents the blood, the blood of my son that was poured out freely for you. Drink it. You're not drinking blood. You're drinking, you're drinking this, this juice that represents that. And that represents Christ is in you. Christ is yours. You're one of us. You're here at this meal. And you're here because of grace. Grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you don't treat us as we deserve. Thank you that you don't treat us with the fairness and justice that the world expects. Thank you that you give us salvation because we could never earn it. Thank you that you give us your love and smile because we could never earn it. We were enemies. We were sinners. We'd have crucified Jesus if we had left to our own heart. But you have touched us by grace, changed us by grace, treated us with grace. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Bless us now as we celebrate this grace at your table. We pray this in your precious name.